0: Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a talk from Scott on Christians as culture creators. This is the first talk in a two-part series he did at Tabor College. Thank you very much for this kind invitation to be at Tabor. I, uh, many years ago, in a former life, I was teaching at a seminary, and I had a student from Tabor. And I would have thought this was uh, Hollywood after, after he was done with all, all his eulogies about how great this school was. So I'm glad, finally, to see this place in the flesh. So happy to be with you and very kind and honored to be invited and as, as, uh, as has been said, I've been asked to talk a little bit about vocation and how the Christian faith influences that and uh, I'm, a, I'm a Bible professor. I don't know anything about the history of vocational theory. Don't want to know anything about vocational theory. I'm a Bible guy. So I want to bring insights from the Apostle Paul to vocations and how this can, as, as a theological vision, influence vocations that many of you are choosing and thinking about. And uh, I taught college students this on a regular basis when we talked about choosing vocations, and I had a powerful influence when I was about the age of college, I was a college student, uh, yeah, it was, it was my after my sophomore year. I was in Europe, and I heard John Stott was asked, um, how do you choose a a vocation? And he said something that really made an impact on my life. And he said, do whatever exploits your gifts the most. And that's a great word uh, to remember. I had a student one time. And I often would would get engaged with conversations uh, about vocation with my students because this is what they were thinking about when when they were in in college. And the student said to me, and uh, I wanted to push him, so I did in this conversation, so that's coming. He said, I wanna make a huge difference in the world. What can I do? And I said to him, is manual labor an option for you? I knew it wasn't, so I thought I'd ask him. (laughs) And he said, never, just like that. And I said, why? He said, it's insignificant. He said that to the wrong person. So I told him about my Scottish grandpa, who moved from Scotland when he was 14 years old, from Scotland to southern Illinois. And if you've seen the book Hillbilly Elegy, that's where he lived among hillbillies in southern Illinois, and he was a coal miner, and he worked every day very early in the morning. He went way down in planet Earth and dug coal, and he was an electrician as well. And he worked and worked and worked his entire life and developed black lung disease for only one reason, to provide for himself and his family. So I said to this student, I said, my grandpa was a good man. I said, his children, mostly, I know some of them, grew up to be wonderful Christian people and God-fearing adults and responsible adults, some of whom went on to become college educated, like my father. I said, was, I said to the student, was his life insignificant? I didn't use the word then. But this would describe what happened, mic drop. <laughs> and I say that because uh, I want to I I push the students in the room tonight to realize your situation. And that is talking about vocations that are significant in the world is only the talk of the privileged. Most people in the world work to put food on the table, and many of them are playing a losing game. Now, my responsibility tonight is, to not, is not to make you feel guilty, but I want you to understand that you are privileged. And I want you to understand, for those of you who, like me, are bald-haired, or gray-haired, that you have an opportunity to help the privilege of the students at Tabor College to use their privilege to the glory of God and to think of their privilege not as something to deride or to criticize, but to use it as an opportunity to make a difference in the world because of the privilege that they have. I don't believe, I grew up in a farming community, I don't happen to believe that farming or factory work or stay-at-home moms is unprivileged or insignificant. I consider these vocations in life to be opportunities for people to do what God has called them to do and to make a difference in their own way. But I would like you to consider your privilege as an opportunity to make a difference and to use your Christian education to influence our world through the church into the world uh, in a Christian way. Now, I've been asked to talk a little bit about my vocation. I'm I'm a Bible professor. I teach the New Testament. It's really hard. I've been doing this my whole life, and I love every day when I get up. Now, I have to admit, I have a better schedule than a lot of professors. Uh, But, and that's why I get to write and get to travel and speak, but I love what I do. But I know many people in my profession who I would say um, their allegiance is to the academy, not to the church. That they're, they're concerned with their reputation, not the glory of God. That they are intoxicated with their brilliance, and some of them are. And not with the mind of Christ. It is very possible to be Christian scholars and to be not very Christian in character. So I, I check myself and as I look at what I want to talk uh, to you tonight about is I'm talking to myself as well because I believe all these things make a difference when I'm teaching seminary students about the New Testament. That's not an advertisement, but, but if you take it as such, I would be more than happy. (laughs) About 15 years ago, I looked myself in the mirror and I saw myself in some of these professors who were more committed to the Academy than the Church and more committed to their own mind than the mind of Christ, that I was committed to being a historian and an exegete and a theologian, but I didn't know how Christian that occupation was. And so I I made a major change in my life, and I made the change that I was gonna write a book for the church, and I was gonna see what that was like. And I wrote a book, it's called The Jesus Creed, and it was about learning to love God and to love others because I call this The Jesus Creed. In Hebrew, it's the Shema. And I tried to call my book The Shema of Jesus, and my publisher wouldn't let me put a Hebrew word on the cover because nobody would know what it meant. So, and plus they pronounce it Shema, and that would be even worse. So, <laughs> Jesus has a scribe come to him and um, says, what is the greatest commandment of all? Sort of a Snow White type fashion question. What is the fairest of them all? And Jesus looks the scribe in the eye and he says, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, hero Israel. The Lord our God the Lord is one Echad, and you should at least learn that Hebrew word because it's it's guttural enough to make it sound like you know what you're talking about (laughs) and he said love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and in Mark he adds and all your mind and all your strength and the second is this and the scribe I'm making this up but I think it happened the scribe says I didn't ask you for two I asked you for one Jesus said don't interrupt me I'm on a roll. (laughs) And he said, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus then finishes this off, and there's two versions of how it finishes off. You can ask Professor Gray to solve the problem of redaction of which one is preliminary or prior. And here it is. Matthew says, from these two commandments, all the commandments hang, 611 hanging from the two of loving God and loving others. So they're all expressions for Matthew of either loving God and loving others. And Mark says, there is no commandment greater than these. And I noticed, I noticed how frequently when you perceive this as the center of Jesus's moral vision, and it's central to the Apostle Paul, it's central to John, who's obsessed with the word love, it comes up in Peter, and it comes up in James. So this early commitment to love, God, love your neighbor as yourself becomes central to early Christianity. And I began to watch it in Jesus. So what, as a result of studying this, I decided in the morning, when I get up, when I put my feet on the ground, I would say the Jesus Creed, hero Israel, etc." And I decided I would say it in Hebrew because it makes me feel superior. <laughs> which is not exactly the best of motives. It's not an Anabaptist Mennonite motive to, all right? So it's Anglican, and I can be snooty about that at times. And then I decided that I would say it when I came to bed and took my feet off the ground. Then I made another commitment that I would say it every time it came to mind throughout the day. And I would find myself saying the Jesus Creed sometimes 40 or 50 times a day. And it really bothered me. And it bothered me because I started to become more sensitive to my students they'd come into me and say "Um, can I have an extension for my paper and my inclination was to say was that paper not in the syllabus on the first day and instead I asked why would you like to have an extension and I found myself driving in the Chicago suburbs on the Edens Highway, where Green Bay Packer fans drive fast with their stupid cheesehead things on their head. And I found myself trying to bless them. Now, I only said trying to bless them. I never quite could get there. But that's better than what I would have said before that. I'm just joking. Okay. But what I'm saying is, it, be, it became intensely personal to me because I was repeating the Jesus Creed. And I found myself drawn into becoming a person more capable of responding in each engagement that I had with people to respond in love in the situation. And it was not easy, it was hard, it was challenging. And I found that the Jesus Creed haunted my moral life. And I would encourage you to try this for a month, and don't write me any imprecatory prayers, uh, but I would, I would encourage you in the morning, say the Jesus Creed, hear O Israel, and at night say it again, and whenever else it comes to mind, and I think you will find yourself responding to people differently over time. And that's why in Deuteronomy 6, they were taught to say this in the morning and in the evening, and they were taught to say it when they left the house and when they entered the house. And when they were on the way with their children, they were to teach their children the Jesus Creed or the Shema. And so I'm a Bible professor tonight, and I'm saying this because this influenced my life, and I don't think you would have ever invited me had I not been involved in that project. I would still be writing academic books that nobody reads, but people review whether they read them or not. And I would like to suggest that that knowing the Christian vision of the Apostle Paul can help us become culture makers in whatever vocation we choose, whatever vocation God calls you to do. Paul's term for a leader, the Apostle Paul's term, is pro and he talks about leaders in the church. And as a result of seeing how Paul talks about leaders and how he models leadership himself, I think we can discover some of the secrets of what Paul thought was important in the Christian vision that can help you in your vocation, whatever it might be, and I hope it's to go to seminary and become a pastor. We need more pastors today, not fewer, more. We need more people committed to the significance And centrality of the church in our local community. But if if you're not called to that, whatever you're called to, I believe that as a leader that you can influence your world uh, and your job and the people in your circle in a Christian direction. What what does it look like? What are the characteristics of a Christian influence, a Christ-like culture being formed around you? And I want to look at a few of these ideas tonight. The first one that I'd like to look at is that a Christ-like culture surrounding Christian influence, emanating from Christian influence, is first of all people-oriented. People-oriented. The Apostle Paul uh, in 2nd Corinthians uh, writes in a way that sounds mighty vulnerable, because I believe the Apostle Paul loved people. I don't know that he said the Jesus Creed every day, but some days I'm really sure he did, and it's only because I want my theory confirmed that I'm really sure he did. But I do believe that Paul prayed reciting prayers, that he was shaped by the Shema as a young boy, and that as he grew up, He was influenced by the teachings of Jesus. But I'd like to read two passages in 2nd Corinthians that emphasize the people-centeredness of Paul's life, the people-centeredness of his vocation. And uh, this this is the point that, uh, that I'd like you to consider, that whatever vocation you get, it is easy to turn a vocation into a profession. It is easy to turn it into metrics that can be measured of success. And when that happens, it becomes less people-oriented and more results-oriented and produce-oriented. The Apostle Paul, talking about his ministry, never talked about how big his churches were. We have to figure this out, so we guess. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says this, When I went to Troas, which is a nice city on the western tip of modern-day Turkey, to preach the gospel of King Jesus, and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, you know, the desire of an evangelist is to find an open door. He had an opportunity to be successful in what God had called him to do. He said, I had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Just imagine this. He had an opportunity of evangelistic success in Troas, and he abandons the location because of his personal relationship with Titus and the Christians in Corinth. In chapter 7, verse 2, We read the end of this. There's a big section in 2 Corinthians. It's like an interlude, and it finishes off in chapter 7. Here's what Paul said. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. He said, we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles my joy knows no bounds." Now Paul picks up the narrative of being depressed. For when we came into Macedonia we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Now this is the Apostle Paul vulnerable, so vulnerable that he says he can't even continue in ministry because of his love of the Corinthians was so intense that he could not minister until he found out how they had responded to Titus when he got there. That is a person who cares about people. And one of the great signs of caring about people is knowing people's names. I had a student who uh, was taking an introduction course that I was teaching on introduction to the Bible. And at the time I was teaching this introduction to the whole Bible, the first day was a quiz. Because I wanted to find out what students knew about the Bible, which was not very much. And it wasn't at that time for me all that unimportant not to remind them of how, much, how little they did know, so their opinions, needed some grounding in scripture. Well, I gave this quiz. The first question, of course, is the obvious one. Who are the first two people mentioned in the Bible? And then I went through some simple questions, Abraham, you know, Moses, who gave the Ten Commandments? And uh, after about 15 minutes, a young woman who was sitting in the back came up to me and she said, I think I should drop this class. I said, why is that? She said, I can't answer any of the questions. And I very insensitively said, not even the first one? And she said, not even the first one. I said, I'll tell you what. I said, what's your name? And she said, my name's Andrea. I said, Andrea, here's the deal I'm gonna make with you. You can leave now, but I want you to come to class. And every time when I'm talking, if you don't understand it, I want you just to rub your nose. And then I'm gonna back up and I'm gonna clarify what I think you're asking. You just keep rubbing your nose if I'm not talking about it. So the next class, there was a lot of this. And after a couple of weeks, there was not so much of this. And we go through the whole Bible in one semester, which is not possible, but we did it. <laughs> so about the time we turned to Jesus, I started to see in her countenance a transformation. And I was thinking this is pretty cool. Now this is all that happened in my relationship with her. She didn't really want to be in the class all that much, but something was going on. She would come in the room and I would say to her, hi Andrea, and she would not look me in the eye, but she'd go, hi professor, and then she'd go sit in the back of the, of the room. Well, about, as I said, about the middle of the class, I started seeing a change in her countenance, and it started to look like things were making sense. At the end of the semester, she wrote me a long letter in which she told me that when her father was a young boy, he had been abused by a priest in in Chicago, and he had banned his children from ever mentioning God, mentioning Jesus, reading the Bible, talking about the Bible, of ever going to church. And she said, when I came into this class, she said, I literally knew nothing about the Bible. She said, I'd heard a few things in high school from teachers, but I didn't know anything about it. So she said, what I decided to do in your class was to read the Bible. And she said, something happened. And she used this expression, as I read the Bible, my heart felt warmed, and I said, If you just use strangely you could be John Wesley. (laughs) But then she told me that she had become a Christian and that she loved Jesus and she was sneaking out on Sunday mornings before her father got up and she would go to church and she took a class of mine on Jesus of Nazareth and she flourished and she graduated four years later as a nursing student with a very good degree and she hugged me in graduation and announced to me that she was a Christian and couldn't wait to get on with being a Christian nurse in the world. People, all I did, I think this is all that mattered, is I learned her name. And I think by calling her Andrea, every time she came in, she thought she was acknowledged. I knew nothing about her and she told me nothing. Learn people's names, learn their name. My professor in seminary said, the first thing you learn about a people about people is their name, and the second, how to spell it accurately. One T in Scott. Thank you very much, all right? So a Christian culture that you are called in your vocation to be a part of is to be people-oriented. Learn people's names and think about them as people. Secondly, is it focuses, a Christian, fo- a Christian culture focuses on God and formation. God and formation. One of the great Hebrew words in the Bible, and I'll try to get this right, is davak, and is often rendered cleave to or hold fast to. The Bible uses this word first for Adam cleaving to Eve in Genesis chapter 2, but it is also a very common word used for cleaving to God in our personal relationship with God. So here are a few verses, Deuteronomy 10, 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. Him alone shall you worship. To Him shall you hold fast. To Him hold fast. Cleave to God. And by His name you shall swear. In Deuteronomy chapter 13:4, The Lord your God you shall follow. Him alone you shall fear. His commandments you shall keep. His voice you will obey. Him shall you serve, and to Him you shall hold fast. Christians are people who hold fast to God. Now, I'm going to share with you what I think this means. This means that people pray. They talk to God. Praying is a is a uh, is a discipline in the Christian life. that that is used many times to make people feel guilty, that they're not praying enough. I don't want, I don't want that uh, to occur in what I'm saying. I believe that our ruminations and our desires can be turned from simple ruminations and desires toward God as prayers. And when we do this over time, we begin to realize that we can be praying all day long in our thought life and we can utter sentence prayers, and we need to cleave to God. To cleave to God not only means to pray, it means to listen to God. And if I listen to Eugene Peterson well, we listen to God in Scripture first, and it gives us the words to pray, and it gives us the proper responses. As we listen to God speak, we become people who speak back. We are to be people who are devoted to God, And this devotion idea is that we have a personal relationship of God enveloped in constant communication with God. And I would encourage you, in whatever vocation you attend to, whatever God calls you to do, to allow your life to be shaped by devotion to God, devak, clinging to, cleaving to, holding fast in your relationship with God. Christians, I believe, should be formed over time because of their relationship to God. And to be a formed Christian doesn't mean you read the Bible 20 minutes a day and pray 10 minutes a day so you can knock off your 30 minutes of devotion per day. A devoted person, someone who is devoted to God, characterized by divak, are people who are loving, people who are holy, people who are just, people who pursue peace, and people who are wise. To be devoted to God, in other words, is not a description so much of your inner life as it is the transformation from the inside out into becoming the kind of person God wants us to be. This is not radical, but it can be painful. But I would like to say this. I expect Christians, the Bible expects Christians to be different. The world knows Christians should be different, different in the sense that they live according to the teachings of Jesus. Nothing is more detrimental to our witness as Christians than Christians who don't look at all like Jesus. And the world is looking at you and me, and in your workplace, people are going to see if you respond to people as a Christian. A third characteristic is that a Christian culture that we get to influence, as in whatever vocation we have, embodies care, embodies care. Not long ago, I read a novel by George Bernanos, and it was called The Diary of a Country Priest. And it was so well-written that I got irritated in the book because I didn't think it was well-written, and then I realized he was trying to get me irritated. And here's what happened. He describes a country priest who, he doesn't tell you this, but you realize as the narrative goes on, is dying of cancer, and it's bad. But he continues with his rounds of visiting people in his parish, and you get really irritated with the people of how they complain and their petty concerns, and you get to where you're admiring the priest for his gentleness and for his kindness and for his care. And at the same time, you're beginning to think, this guy is suffering immeasurably, and all the people around him are doing is picking at him and complaining about the church and about France and about the problems in the, in the culture. But he just continues to exhibit care and concern as the story goes along. And as I said, I was getting irritated because I thought uh, these people have all these crazy concerns uh, uh, and they're so selfish about their concerns And this guy just keeps on suffering on their behalf until he dies, and then as I got toward the end of the book I thought, that was just like Christ, just like Christ. He suffered for the good of other people, and I was irritated because they didn't appreciate his pastoral care, and as the story went on I was the one humiliated by the glory of the narrative as it brought me closer to Christ, as I saw that pastoral care can lead to healing of people, but it can go through the path of suffering. The one thing Christians ought to be known for is caring for others. Now, I have to say this. I grew up Baptist, and I'm now an Anglican, but there is no group in the United States more known for caring than Mennonites and I commend you for a history and a culture that when something happens in the world, the Mennonites are ready to go. This is something to be applauded and to be commended as characteristic of Mennonite culture, at least I think it is. Am I accurate here? You were probably the first group in Houston, and you'll be the first group also to go to Florida. You'll be the groups that always respond to people in need and I commend you. It is a Christian characteristic of Mennonites to care for people in suffering. Keep it up. You are a witness to the world. The Amish, the Mennonites, can I bring you all together now? The Mennonite brethren, I know there's about 11 different kinds of Mennonites. You're all alike to me, so. I don't care about those differences. (laughs) Christians should create a culture of care in whatever job you get to witness to the glory of the gospel by how you care. Fourth, a Christ-like culture for a Christian in whatever vocation they have keeps its eyes on Christ. I study conversions and I write about conversions and conversion theories and conversion patterns, which led me, because here was a major theory of conversion theorists, every conversion is simultaneously an apostasy. So if you convert to Christ you are apostatizing from the world or something else. So I had a harebrained idea one time, sitting on my back porch. I may or may not have been smoking a cigar. You'll have to guess. And I had this idea that if all conversions are an apostasy, all apostasies are conversions. So I began to study stories of apostasy. It was a very depressing summer just reading about all these people who had left the faith. And there was one thing that came to me with such force, it was was life transforming in, in an intellectual sense. Person after person after person who abandoned Christ and the Christian faith talked about evolution, they talked about problems in the Bible, they talked about hell, They talked about churches. They talked about Christians. They talked about Christian leaders. But this is what bothered me the most, is nobody said they missed Jesus. So I began to pay attention far more intensively to the way we talk about what we believe. Listen to this something I read this week on the Internet. I read a blog post by a young man who for sure thought he was being risky. He wasn't but he he just thought he was. So it became cute at points. (laughs) He announced that preaching the Bible was not enough for preachers. Announcing that we are preaching the Bible, he said every week, saying, we focus on the Bible in this church is not enough. He said, we have to preach the central event of the Bible, the crucifixion. I was with him until he said, event. I wanted to write in his comments, you know, you can drop those comments, mic drop type comments, and I wanted to say, no, we don't preach events, we preach Jesus. We talk about a person, and this is one of the biggest problems about the gospel. It becomes propositional transactions rather than reading about Jesus and talking about Jesus. Here's my illustration of this, many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia or at least The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, at least you've seen the movie, all right, which is pathetic compared to C.S. Lewis's prose, all right, amen. Amen. (laughs) At least I have one person in my corner and he was a former student so that's not counting very much. So When you read the Chronicles, when you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, what happens, especially to children, when they read that first book? Here's what happens they fall in love with Aslan. You know, they don't get obsessed with how the stone table cracking brought forgiveness to their sins. They know that the lion is roaming the land again and they get to climb up on the back of the lion and put their face in its mane. They love the lion. That's what evangelism is in our world. We can talk to people about Jesus. My friend Dan Kimball wrote a book They Like Jesus but Not the Church. Think about that. If they like Jesus, give them Jesus. That's not bad, you know. Forget the church for now, talk about Jesus. He'll get him in the church. And here's something else I learned. There's a test that the Welsh, a Welsh, two Welsh scholars gave called, I think it's called the image of Jesus or something like that. And they give people 24 personality questions. It's reliable and valid. My wife's a psychologist, she told me which words to use. It's a test that actually gives reliable results about personality types. And then, because it's given to young people, they distract them by asking them questions about their personal life. You know, how old are you? How many parents do you have? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And they, are, they forget what they answered uh, about themselves. And then they ask the same questions in reverse order about Jesus. Now, this is an alarming result. The correlation of what people think about themselves and what they think about Jesus is so high. That it's clear that people like Jesus. They want Jesus to be like themselves so much they make him like themselves. Now here's what's alarming about this test they did in Wales and England, is that this is the same correlation for Christians, for non-Christians, for agnostics, for atheists, for Buddhists, and for Muslims. Everybody wants to be like Jesus. Now, actually, they're not like Jesus. They've made Jesus like themselves, which is a serious problem. But this is the first step forward we have. We can talk about Jesus and know that there's going to be a positive interest in, this, in him as a person. So a Christ-like culture focuses on Jesus. Am I running out of time here? I grew up Baptist, you know, we didn't have clocks in our church. I'll make my last point is this, a Christ-like culture in whatever vocation you have is about the presence of Christ, the presence of Christ. And I don't know how to say this, and I don't want to be weird, but you and I are the presence of Christ in the world. We're not the only presence of Christ, but you and I are the presence of Christ. I sometimes wear A collared shirt, you know where you put a tab in? So you look like a priest, It's like this. Just like this, it's not very fancy, I'll tell you that right now. See, am I getting it in there right? Okay, when I wear this to the airport, (laughs) it is inevitable that people will ask me to pray for them. I go to a gate and people say, Father, I say, not a father, I'm not a father, okay. <laughs> Will you pray for me? I'm scared of the flight. People have caught, gotten me into a corner and said you got to pray for me, my father's dying of cancer. It's one thing after another because they perceive in this garb the presence of Christ. Now I'll take this off so the Mennonites won't feel too uncomfortable. <laughs> Now, my favorite story of this, you're not going to believe this story, of the embodied presence that you and I are comes from Alec Guinness, known to most of us as Obi-Wan Kenobi in the mega hit, is it Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, whichever, it doesn't matter. I haven't seen either one of them, so it doesn't matter. All I know is he's famous. And this is what I read. While acting the role of a priest in Father Brown in Burgundy, France, Obi-Wan Kenobi or Alec Guinness tells a story of a late evening shoot that attracted a fair number of local folk, including children, and he wrote, a room had been put at my disposal in the little station hotel three kilometers away. By the time dusk fell, I was bored and dressed in my priestly black. He was, he was dressed up as Father Brown. He said, I climbed the gritty winding road to the village. In the square, children were squealing, having mock battles with sticks for swords and dustbin lids for shields. And in a cafe, Peter Finch, Bernard Lee, and Robert Hamer were sampling their first perno of the evening. I joined them for a modest cur. If you know that, don't tell anybody but those are. Then discovering I wouldn't be needed for at least four hours, I turned back toward the station. By now it was dark. I hadn't gone far when I heard scampering footsteps and a piping voice calling Mon Père, my father. My hand was seized by a boy of seven or eight who clutched my hand tightly, swung it and kept up a non-stop prattle. He was full of excitement, hops, skips, and jumps, but never let go of me. I didn't dare speak in case my excruciating French would scare him. Although I was a total stranger, he obviously took me for a priest, and so to be trusted. Suddenly, with a bonsoir, Mon Père, good night, my father. A hurried sideways sort of bow, he disappeared through a hole in a hedge. He had had a happy, reassuring walk home, and I was left with a calm sense of elation. Continued, Continuing on my walk, I reflected that a church that could inspire such confidence in a child making its priests Even when totally unknown, so easily approachable, could not be as scheming and creepy as so often made out. Guinness said, I began to shake off my long-taught, long-absorbed prejudices against the church, and he returned to a faithful Christian life in the church in England. Now, not many people have a story like that, but that embodies what I'm talking about with presence. You and I are called to be the presence of Christ. And at some point, people are gonna approach you because they've watched you and say, I'd like to tell you something. And they're gonna trust you for the grace of God, and you'll have the opportunity. In whatever vocation you are, you are to become the presence of Christ. So I commend to you tonight, in whatever vocation you choose, these five virtues in the Christian life. And it doesn't matter because God has called you to be a Christian that transcends your vocation and turns your vocation to the glory of God. Thank you.